0: Welcome to the Three Strands Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us. It is our hope and prayer that you will experience God's blessing in your life through our ministry. At Three Strands Church, our goal is to create a culture of redemption where people are free to experience the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. So a couple months ago, several of us got to go to Refuel. Um, It's a Christian conference that several of us get to go to every fall. And as always, I came back very challenged and very encouraged. But I also just had this nagging feeling in my heart. Um, I don't know if you might recognize it. I felt like I might be doing something or many things wrong because I always feel busy. I always feel like life is just a rush and I never feel at rest. So in what felt like a little bit of a Hail Mary, I had actually sent a message on Facebook to a pastor's wife that I had been told about at Refuel. Um, I was hopeful that she might have answers for my dilemma of feeling just stretched really thin. I sent this message to a woman that I didn't know anything about, and I didn't know what to expect to hear from her, but I hoped she had an answer for this this question of mine. And at the end of probably my 2 paragraph description of what I felt was going on in my life I said this I feel like my husband kids and God just get the leftovers of my exhausted self and I wonder if any of you relate to that I've I've experienced some hard times in life for sure. I've struggled with some health problems and most of you know our marriage has had its difficulty through the years and almost didn't make it at one point. Um, But but I've really found that it's the day-to-day struggles, the day in and day out responsibilities and schedules that cause me to ask like, what am I doing here? Um, Why does it seem that the people and the things that I care about the most get the least of my attention? Will I ever get it all done? will I ever rest? How am I supposed to live peacefully and joyfully in the middle of all these demands? So today I get to share with you what Jesus has been teaching my heart over the past two months. On October 14th when I sent that message and wondered if I would get a response, when I'd get a response, if the response would finally be the answer I was looking for, I felt a little nudge in my spirit, a thought that said leftovers aren't always bad. Now, those of you who know me well know that I love Thanksgiving and Christmas because I love to cook a massive amount of food. And the food's great that first day, for sure. But what I actually love about the holiday season and those big meals is that I don't have to cook another real meal for like a week, and it's awesome. Um, Now, some of you are, that's not your favorite. Like, you don't like leftovers, and you're thinking that would be the worst week of my life, but I love it. And so here's a picture of some of our leftovers that we had. Um, you can see we got some, some turkey gravy going and mashed potatoes and ham and regular turkey and a few casseroles. Like we were, we were stocked um, for, for that whole Thanksgiving. And so that was just my favorite, not having to get a bunch of dishes out. All we had to get out were plates and utensils and, and we ate. Um, and it made me think about what I really believe about life and this idea of the leftovers of myself. I think a lot of people, and to me, except for maybe in regard to leftovers, I think a lot of people um, view leftovers as a bad thing. It has kind of a negative connotation. It might communicate a bit of a mess, less than the best, something just to get thrown away, gotten rid of. And that's how I was feeling that day when I sent that message on Facebook. Like the best parts of my life were getting the worst parts of me, just my leftovers, I've learned in times of like absolute desperation, when I was in and out of the hospital for two years because of health issues, or when I really thought that my marriage just wasn't going to make it, that I'm very aware of my need for God. I know that I need him. I'm begging him for help. I'm, I'm just constantly in communication with him. But it's in the day in, day out, getting up, getting the kids ready, getting to work, getting home, making dinner, getting the kids ready for bed, getting in bed, and doing it all over again tomorrow, that I'm just worn out. And I I find myself just feeling such a lack. And I'm thinking, what am I doing here? I'm left alone with my leftover mindset and wishing for a different life. Now, before we go any farther, I do want to communicate a concern that I have about our current society. I feel like as a culture, we require um, a level of commitment to all things and there's like a rush on our, on our time, there's a demand on our wallets and just on our overall being that is not healthy at all. I think there's certainly a place for looking at our circumstances and current pace of life and asking Jesus what should stay and what should go. Sometimes we are just cramming in more than he has designed for us. So about a month ago, also around Thanksgiving time, um, we like to make waffles on the weekend for breakfast. Like that's one of our big favorites on um, Saturday mornings. You can ask the kids. And so we had had waffles that morning and David made all of the waffles pretty much that morning and they all looked beautiful. And we don't joke around with our waffles. Our waffles are like piled high with whipped cream and sprinkles. They have chocolate chips. I put pecans in mine. Like they're awesome. Um, And so all of our waffles had looked wonderful. We had finished eating and I noticed that there was some batter left. And I thought, well, I'll go ahead and make one more waffle. The kids can warm it up the next day they want it or not. So I didn't really bother to measure it out. I just poured it in our waffle maker, and this is the result. And I want you to remember that picture. It's definitely not beautiful. It's quite the mess, but that's what can happen in our lives when we pour too much in. We don't follow the directions. We don't ask Jesus how he would measure what we are doing and not doing with our time. If that's something that you kind of connect with and that's hit a nerve, I just want to let you know there's an excellent resource. We actually have it in the back on the three source. It's called The Best Yes, and it's a book by Lisa Turkhurst, and it's all about, like, really submitting our time to Jesus and asking him to help us prioritize our time. And so I highly recommend that book. Um, One of my biggest takeaways from that book was just this idea that when we say yes to something out loud, we typically are saying no to something else silently. Like, I hate to say no out loud, but that the confrontation in my heart that I'm going to have to say no to something that I may really love, but I'm saying yes out loud to something else, really convicted my heart. So that is an excellent resource, the best yes, but like I said, that's going to be a subject for a different talk. In Ecclesiastes 3, we see that there are seasons of leftovers in our lives. Sometimes the season of leftovers is of our own doing. We make poor choices that lead to rundown, overworked, and underfulfilled days. But sometimes the cause of our season of leftovers may be a life circumstance, a loved one in failing health that you have to care for, maybe your own failing health. Maybe there's an unexpected financial situation that causes you to have to work overtime or get a second job. Maybe a spouse has been deployed or just walked out, leaving you to take care of the kids on your own. Today, we're just going to address the fact that the season of leftovers is a real thing, that there are times when we will feel less than enough, that life is too much, and that it's impossible to get it all done. Some of you have been there. Some of you, that time's coming, and some of us are living in that season right now. Now, in case you're wondering if you have this kind of leftover mentality that I'm talking about, I want to share with you a few signs that I've seen in myself that I know I'm really feeling the leftovers. The first one is obstacles instead of opportunities. I feel like everything in my life is a battle, and it's just a battle that I cannot win. I see disappointment instead of design. I feel frustrated and angry that things are not working out my way, and I can't even consider that God could be working behind the scenes. Grumbling instead of gratitude. I complain about everything, and even when I might find one little thing to be thankful for, I think, oh, but I really should be thankful for so much more, but I just can't think of anything. Kind of call that my Eeyore mentality along with my leftover mentality. Worry instead of wonder. I think of all the possible outcomes in every situation, and most times those possible outcomes are worst case scenarios. I miss the gifts that God has for me each day. I fear the future. I miss the gift of the present. Comparison instead of contentment. I look at what everyone else has, or at least what I think they have from what I can see on their Facebook post or how they appear in our lives. I'm thinking about what could be better, instead of really thinking about what is already really good. I believe that this mentality of viewing myself and my life as not meeting the standard stems back to the lie that I should be enough. I should be able to handle all of this on my own. Everything in my life should be the best. The lie of the leftover is really one of self-sufficiency. I, on my own, should be able to meet the standard every single time whatever that standard is, and when I don't, I deserve condemnation. For me, the standard is that I should be a fully present, happy mom and wife all the time. I should have a minimum of a daily one-hour quiet time with Jesus without interruption. I should excel in my job. I should invest daily in community. My house should be clean and the laundry should always be done. I should work out every day. I should always look like the compilation of my top three hair, makeup, and outfit pins on Pinterest. Now, of course, I know that even in the middle of the small list, it's not possible. Um, So I settle. I am as pleasant as I can stand to be when I've only had four hours of sleep and I have to wake up early to get my work done before the kids get up. My house has dust bunnies everywhere and there is definitely toothpaste in all of our sinks, but at least the dishes are done and most of the toys are put away. We have the goal of date nights and family nights, even if they don't always happen as scheduled. And we have workout equipment in our basement. That's a start, right? So what's on your list? What's your standard? And how have you accommodated yourself to feel better about the inevitable leftovers? Can I share with you today what I'm learning? It's something I think many of us have possibly heard and really know deep down, but it's really been fresh for me for the last couple months. That day when I sent that message on Facebook, my spirit was also prompted to remember one of my favorite verses. It's 2 Corinthians 12.9. It says, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Or the NLT says, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. And I can't explain it, but for the first time in what felt like years, I could breathe again. A weight had been lifted from my heavy heart. The lie that I should be enough was exposed, and the truth that I am not and was never meant to be enough was revealed. Now we've just finished our Blind Spot series where we've been learning that we don't, what we don't see can change everything and that God is at work in the most unexpected places. And my leftovers are a place where I really believe that God wants to bless if I just pay attention. It wouldn't happen if life was just smooth sailing all the time and I could live peacefully and happily without dependence on him. It's in my weakness when I hear that voice that says, it's not enough, you're not enough, that I hear God say, Stephanie, my grace is sufficient. You can't be patient with your kids on your own but with me you can. Ask for help. I'm enough. You can't be respectful to your husband on your own, but come to me. Ask for help. With me you can. You can't be the perfect employee, the exact balance of organization and focus and flexibility and compassion that your clients need, but come to me. I am enough and I will be those things through you. And my humanity to turn all of those things over to God kind of makes me feel like a failure, like I'm just giving up. But I think that's actually a trick, a deception from Satan to keep me trying harder. When we release these places where we feel so much lack to Jesus, we are submitting to him. We are saying, I don't have the answers, but I trust that you do. And I'm going to ask you for help, and I'm going to follow your lead. So in the last couple months, of course, this has not gone perfectly, but when I'm feeling really, really frustrated at work and just feel like I can't deal with any more issues today, I'm learning to ask Jesus for help. When I hear myself going on and on and on in frustration at my kids over the most recent glass has spilled something or, or when they're fighting over their toys and neither of them will give in, I'm learning to ask for help. When my husband and I are having a pleasant disagreement, I'm learning to ask for help. Isn't it what we know to do? I've heard it my whole life, pray about everything. But it's hard. It's hard for me. You know why? Because I'm prideful and I think I'm always right. I have the right to choose to respond that way. So, what has been different in the last couple months? And again, not perfect, not even close. I've experienced a peace and a calm in the moments when I remember to pray, because I'm not just thinking words in my head. I've been saying for a while now that I'm, I'm definitely one of those prayer warriors, not a prayer warrior. If you've been there, you know what I mean. Like, you pray. And you feel more stressed when you finish praying, not less. And so that's kind of what I describe that as being a prayer worrier. But that's been different in the last few months. I'm not just saying words. I'm asking for the presence of God in those moments. When I'm asking him for his help, I'm not even really asking him to fix me or to fix the person that I'm having an issue with. I'm seeking him. And the result is peace, steadiness, and assurance. This quote from Proverbs 31 contributor Arlene Pellicane sums up this concept. Living in peace is not living problem-free. It's living a messy life in the presence of a living God. Today we are going to explore a story that is really a little bit messy when you think about it. But what I've loved in reading the story again and again is that the mess was actually the sign of the Messiah. The story is familiar to most of us this time of year. We will begin in Luke 2, verse 1, if you want to follow along in your Bible, or the words will be on the screen. At that time, the Roman emperor, Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. Now, sometimes it's easy to read the Bible and forget that it was actually a real event. Um, we see pictures of Joseph leading a donkey with Mary sitting on its back, and it looks so peaceful, as on their nice little road on their way to Bethlehem. But the Bible really comes alive when we remember that these were real events that happened with real people. From historical records, the journey to Bethlehem from Nazareth would have been about 90 miles Now, of course, back in the day, Joseph and Mary couldn't just hop in their car and drive the 90 miles on a paved road. Some scholars estimate that Mary and Joseph may have only been able to travel about 10 miles a day, as opposed to the usual 20 miles a day by the typical traveler because Mary was about to have a baby. We celebrate the birth of Jesus in December, but the exact time of the journey is also debated it might have been winter. It might have been really cold if it was the winter months in the 30s. Um, there was a lot of rain in that region during that time of year. They would have had to wear like really long robes and really heavy woolen um, cloaks to be able to make the journey and stay the least bit warm. And that wouldn't be the best, the best hiking year because there's a lot of mountains surrounding Jerusalem that you had to get to before you got to Bethlehem. Either way, I can't imagine walking 90 miles. Basically, if they went 10 miles a day, it would have taken about 9 or 10 days to get there. Um, I can't imagine being 9 months pregnant and walking 10 miles a day. And that's just one of the things that we just need to realize when we realize that these are real people. Um, They had to carry enough food and water for their journey. They possibly had to travel through forests that were home to wild boars, bears, and lions. Bandits or robbers were also commonly stealing from people along routes such as this. It's possible that they were traveling alone, or it's possible that they were traveling with a group of people who also had to go to Bethlehem for the census. Can you imagine the stress of each evening setting up camp, hoping to make it through the night, just to pack it all up, travel over rigorous terrain and possibly horrible weather, just to camp out again for the next night, all because some politician wanted to make a people count? And then, can you imagine getting to your destination and finding that there is not one room to stay in? No relatives with a spare couch, no hotel vacancies. And this is where we pick up our story. In verse 6, we read, And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son she wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them now some scholars actually believe that Jesus was not born in the typical stable that we see pictured in the majority of nativities today they believe he was in a cave possibly housing sheep and maybe the pack animal such as a donkey that they would have brought with them for the journey again it's easy to read the story and not be there can you feel the bitter chill Or can you feel the muggy, oppressive heat? Can you hear and smell the animals and all that comes with animals? Can you hear Mary crying out in pain at this delivery? Not only with no epidural, but not even slightly sanitary conditions. Mary and Joseph were real people. Who wants to give birth to a baby away from home in a cave surrounded by livestock? Can you see the potential for the leftover mentality? I don't know about you, but I think I would definitely see obstacles instead of opportunities. I would feel all kinds of discouragement and disappointment, and there's no way I would see this as God's design. I mean, he must have been taken surprise by the census, right? Gratitude would be the farthest thing from my mind as I grumble and complain about the extreme inconvenience of this trip. Surely there is no cause for contentment as I compare all the other girls who got to have their babies at home with their family in a comfortable, warm room, not in a cave. And wonder would have been lost on me. I would worry about the safety of the delivery. What happens to a baby born in these conditions? Will he survive? Will I survive? How long will we have to stay here? When will it be safe to travel again? I wonder if there are any doctors that could come help out here. But what did Mary and Joseph do? They wrapped this precious promised baby in strips of cloth or swaddling clothes and laid him down in a feeding trough for animals. Little did they know that this was just the beginning of the greatest story ever told. They were just living their lives, doing their best to deal with a season of busyness and demands and requirements that they couldn't control. Last week, David taught about the shepherds and how they were just living ordinary lives when God showed up through a bunch of angels and offered them the opportunity to witness the birth of Jesus. This is what I found amazing about this part of the story that I had never noticed in all of the years that I've read and heard the Christmas story. In verse 12, we read that the angels told the shepherds, You will recognize him by this sign, you will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in the manger. Did you see it? The angel told the shepherds that they would recognize the Savior because they would find a baby. Now, I don't know for sure. The song says Bethlehem was a little town, but on this particular night, it was cram-packed full. There was no room for Mary and Joseph anywhere, remember? It is possible that there were other babies in this little town on this particular night. So the angels gave the shepherds a little more detail. The baby would be wrapped in swaddling clothes, as the King James Version says, or in strips of cloth, as the NLT says. At first, I thought this must have been a bit of a unique technique, but it turns out that wrapping up a baby in strips of cloth was a common and nurturing practice, just like we use swaddle blankets today. But the last piece of information was crucial. You will find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Now that particular description had to narrow down the search significantly. I never thought about it before, but the manger, the feeding trough, the only thing left that Mary and Joseph could find to place the newborn baby Jesus in was the sign that the shepherds had found their Messiah. Mary and Joseph likely did not go to Bethlehem thinking, let's let's go to Bethlehem and let's find a cave and let's have this baby and, hey, a feeding trough, that would be the perfect bed for this baby, the savior of the world. The feeding trough was just a leftover, but it was a leftover that marked the very presence of God in human form. Is it possible that the place you are feeling all you have is leftovers is actually an intentional space provided by God to make room in your life for his presence? We talked about it a little last week, about the intentionality of God in choosing the shepherds to meet baby Jesus. And we see his design again today. Jesus was the son of God. God could have chosen anywhere in the world. He could have chosen any time in the space of existence. But he chose Bethlehem as the town. He chose a cave as the delivery room, and he chose a manger as his son's first bed. Let's join the shepherds in verse 16. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. Again, let's remember that this is a real event that happened to real people. Now, here are Mary and Joseph just having been through the most amazing and likely the most traumatic event of their lives and in rushed the shepherds." I think it's interesting that God invited the shepherds into the middle of Mary and Joseph's leftover experience. This is another place where I can sense a leftover mentality in myself because when I feel like I have nothing left, I really don't want an audience. I want privacy. I want my personal space. I want isolation. I don't want an invitation. But the presence of God is not something to be hidden. And the shepherds were not about to keep the secret. We read in verse 17, After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherds' story were astonished. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. And here we see the impact of God showing up in the middle of leftovers. Everyone who heard this story was astonished, and the shepherds brought glory and praise to God for all that they had seen. Is it possible that when people see Jesus in the middle of your leftovers that they will be amazed? Is it possible that when we see Jesus in the middle of our leftovers, we will praise and glorify God? instead of living discouraged and defeated lives. So how do we experience Jesus in our season of leftovers? To start, we need to recognize the reason Jesus had to come in the first place. Romans 3.23 tells us that we all fall short and none of us meet God's standard. So at our core, that feeling that we just don't have enough to offer is really a legitimate feeling. But it can lead us to two options— It can lead us to try harder, to prove that we are good enough, or it can lead us to Jesus. Romans 6.23 tells us that because none of us can meet God's standard, we all deserve the punishment of death and separation from God forever. But that's not the end of the story. This verse goes on to say that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. We celebrate Christmas because it is the best gift that was ever given. The gift from God to all of humanity of a baby who lived a perfect life that we could never live and then died a death he didn't deserve to take the punishment we deserved so that we can be made right with God. Romans 5.8 tells us that this is how God showed his love for us. And in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, we read, There is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. So in order to experience Jesus in our leftovers, we need to recognize our need for him, and we need to invite him into the middle of it all. Now, some of you have known Jesus for a really long time but you have forgotten to live with him every day. You may be like me, busy, preoccupied, distracted, tired, and it is leading you to feel a lack in your life. But let me challenge you today to recognize that feeling of lack as an opportunity for the Lord of your life to be in the lead again. Seek his presence, not just his ability to problem solve. I heard this quote from Stephen Furtick a few weeks ago. He said, God's presence is less about fixing our problems and more about fixing our perspective. Something about the presence of God changes my thinking and opens me up to new possibilities. And today I want to encourage those of you who already know Jesus to engage him in a new way. You will be filled with grace and peace that can only come from him in your everydays, and in your leftovers. Others of you here may have been familiar with the Christmas story. You may talk about Jesus or attend church on occasion. You might pray for others, but you feel a lack because you are always trying harder and continue to feel that you are never enough. Can I invite you today to receive the gift of freedom from trying harder by receiving complete forgiveness for your shortcomings and all of your moral failures? by accepting the grace that you don't deserve but is exactly all you need and by asking Jesus to lead your life from this day forward. Jesus came to this earth to rescue us all. There are no perfect words and a perfect prayer to pray. Romans 10:9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, not by doing the right things, not by performing, not by trying harder. And it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. And we are promised in verse 13 that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Will you receive the true gift of Christmas today? The gift of the presence of Jesus in the middle of your mess and your leftovers. His grace is truly enough for whatever you face today and whatever you will face in the future.